hang on, we're going to sing that again in just a moment. I want you to tell somebody who's close around you which one of those names that we just sang about, which one of those names blessed you tonight, which one of those names maybe that you need the Lord to do that in your life. Just take just a moment and share that with uh, somebody close around you. Shepherd, fortress, rock of salvation. Remember all those? Prince of peace. Because all of those names are true and they're always true. But there are those times when God has revealed himself in a certain way that fits whatever we're going through. The attacks, the storms, the deserts, the blessings, all of those things, right? Okay. Now, would you take out your newsletter and look at the prayer list tonight and think of someone that you need to pray for and how would you pray for them using one of those names? And I'm sure you probably, well, all of them fit. That, that's true. That's true. I get that. But is there one that seems to be particularly appropriate for whoever you are praying for tonight? And then what I'd like for you to do is bow your heads, close your eyes, and pray for them, claiming that name, the name of our blessed Lord, for that person that your soul is burdened about. And then in just a moment, we'll sing that song again, okay? If you're thinking about the word master, you might want to pray for a lost person and say, Lord, be the master of their life. Or a rebel, Lord, as the master, reclaim them and bring them back. You might think about a person who's confused and wandering. You might claim the name Shepherd for them. Somebody who's wavering, maybe the rock. Somebody who's under attack, think of Fortress. Father, before we sing this song again, I know tonight I've thought of some people that the term son of David seems to be appropriate. Because when I think of the son of David, I think, of course, of a king. And uh, Lord, some people have they just struggle surrendering to your lordship, your kingship. And they always want to do things their way on their timing always seem to be coming to you as a last resort instead of bowing before you as the sovereign king and surrendering to your will. But also, when I think about uh, the son of David, David reminds me of people who need to repent. And I think about that long, long period of time after David had his um, affair with Bathsheba and after he had Uriah the Hittite killed to try to cover his sin... And I think of Psalm 32 when he talks about day and night your hand was heavy upon me. And uh, Lord, I've had some people on my mind lately that I prayed that you would do that to them and get their attention. But I also want to pray for them tonight that like David, they would see the Psalm 51 side of things. That you're a God who forgives. You're the God who restores. You're the God who doesn't overlook a broken heart. And I think, Lord, uh, that as the son of David, I think about people who need a sacrifice tonight. Because, Lord Jesus, you are the son of David, yes, but you're also the one who paid the price for our sins. And so many people don't know that. And I pray for lost people tonight. And I pray for you to reveal yourself to them. I pray for people who are unsure of their salvation. Those who are filled with doubts and fears and concerns. 
I pray you would settle that for them. And if they're not saved, save them. And if they are saved, give them that uh, blessed assurance. And so, Lord, tonight we find peace. We find comfort. We find strength. We find joy. All as we think about you and who you are and the various names by which you have revealed yourself. And we thank you for that, Lord. And as we sing this song, may you receive glory tonight. And it's in Jesus' name, your people come to rest in you and pray. Amen. His name is Master, Savior, I Okay, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm. We're going to start 133, the 133rd Psalm tonight. We're only going to cover one verse, so uh, just in case you are thinking that means it's going to be short, just junk that. You never know. And I uh, had a pastor that said, uh, my sermons are like baloney. You can cut them off anywhere. And I thought, that's a bad metaphor, isn't it? Bad metaphor, but... We'll see what we can do with the time that we have tonight. And uh, we're going to look at one verse, but we're going to read the whole thing. It's a short psalm. You'll recognize it. It's beautifully written, of course, like all of them are. Psalm 133, beginning with verse 1. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Verse 2. It's like the precious oil upon the head. Notice how they anointed people with oil then. We put a little dot. The precious oil upon the head. Look at this. Running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron. Running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So it's interesting to see that God puts a priority and loves it when his people are living and walking in unity. Now this is written to Israel, so we don't want to just run past that because Israel had a particular problem with unity, didn't they? And there were times when you would see Israel doing well. Think about our study in Exodus. And if you know some of you have read on into Numbers and uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and you've uh, kind of had a new understanding of all of that because of uh, our study and the ladies' study through Exodus. And you'll notice that the problems that they had, the murmuring and the grumbling and turning on each other and turning on Moses and not following the Lord and not believing his promises, all of those are signs of disunity. And disunity is a problem for the people of God. Even when Jesus was walking on earth, there was disunity even among the disciples. For one thing, Judas wasn't even saved, and he was walking with them pretending and uh, you know, carrying on like he was. So you know his heart wasn't in anything that Jesus was saying. And he was carrying the money bag because they thought he was uh, trustworthy and he wasn't the Bible says he was stealing from them so boy his heart wasn't with them at all but how many times did you find the disciples arguing with one another 
arguing over who's the greatest and who's going to sit at the right and the left hand of Jesus and all of that kind of thing. It's just in our nature to kind of separate, to kind of divide, to want our own way. And all you have to do is uh, get around a group of small children and watch them and watch how they are selfish. You know, that's mine. I wanted that. It can be a toy they never touch. But when someone else starts playing with it, all of a sudden, jealousy erupts, right? And uh, sometimes they want to play different games and different uh, ways to play the same game. You know, they may argue over all of that. And I thought, that must be what the Lord sees when he looks down upon his people. That must have been what he saw when he looked down upon Israel. Israel, at one time, after David's death and after Solomon's death... They even split into two different nations. The tribes had trouble getting along and they had trouble obeying the Lord and all of those things. Just division and they couldn't get unified. Now, somebody said one time, I think my father-in-law said this and I've heard some others, that you can tie two cats together and you may have union, but you don't have unity. Okay. Well, I thought about this. You can put 50 states together in one country and you can have union, but you don't always have unity. And we're about as divided now as we've ever been. Some people say since the Civil War. I haven't lived quite that long, but um, I, I thought I'd ask Ron Coley what the Civil War was like, but he, he didn't want to answer. So, But, uh, you know, you can be together without having unity. Because to have unity, I think you have to look outside of yourself to something bigger than yourself. Sometimes putting together puzzles when I was a kid, I would look at all of the different pieces and I would try to put them where I thought they ought to go. And sometimes it worked, but there were other times it didn't work so well. It sure looked like it ought to go. Did you ever try to force a piece where it's not supposed to go? And I found out that... Uh, best thing for me to do is just look at the box and look at the picture that's on the box and then I realize oh this is Mickey Mouse's foot not his ear or something like that and then I could put it kind of figure out where the right place was and then when it all came together it has to be in, not just in union because you could take a mallet and you could hammer a piece in or you could tear the piece off or cut it with a knife and then you could make it fit but it, it wouldn't quite be right I knew a guy one time that his dentures weren't quite right and he was always taking them out and then taking his pocket knife and whittling on his dentures to get them to fit in there right. I mean, you can do that kind of stuff, but there's, uh, to quote my dad, there's a right way and a wrong way to do everything. And God is telling us here the right way to do everything. It's not about getting our way. It's not about having our will be done. It's not about pressuring other people, manipulating other people. It's not about being pressured and being manipulated and just kind of going with the flow just because, but resenting every moment of it. And so many times you see churches that walk and live like that. They're either a, a, on a power trip and they're trying to get other people to do things their way, see things their way, and they force and manipulate other people. Or there's a whole group of people that says, why do we always have to do what? And they usually name about two people in the church. Why do we have to do what they say? Why do they always get their way? And it's always been strange to think that a couple of people could have that kind of sway over a congregation. I know of one church where uh, one of the deacons made this statement. The job of the deacons in the church is to protect the church from the pastor. Okay? No wonder they weren't leading people to Christ. No wonder they weren't having a positive impact on their community. Does that make sense? Because there's not a unity. Now unity, if you're going to say something like this. I'm the pastor, and your job is just to obey me and see everything my way. How far do you think we're going to get on that? The same token, what if it turns around to where the congregation, I had a, 
a deacon in one church tell me that the last pastor that they really liked was 30 years before I got there, and it took them about three years before he saw things our way. How do you think that's going to work? And no wonder he didn't stay very long. See, unity has to be when all of us look to something or someone else, and then we conform to something or someone that is outside of us. And the Bible says that it is blessed, right? How good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. But then he adds a word in the very beginning of it to what I just said, and he uses the word behold. So the first point we're going to have tonight is this is something that is just basic. And God calls attention to the basics of life so many times. Now there's an old story that uh, you probably have heard about uh, Vince Lombardi with the Green Bay Packers being unhappy with the way his team played and he goes into the locker room with those professional football players and he says it's time to get back to the basics and he picks up the ball and says gentlemen this is a football now it's been debated as to whether that happened or not but I wouldn't doubt it because sometimes we have to be reminded of the basics this is what it's all about this is a football well we know that and when we talk about unity I think a lot of us would say well I, I, I get that I know what that is except we don't and we forget and we divide so easily and so the Lord because we're a lot like ancient Israel to whom this was written he puts this word in it how many times have you seen the word behold in the Bible quite a few times and what is it that God is doing whenever he says, behold? Remember when the angels told the shepherds, they used the word behold, and it's in several places like that. What are they doing? Calling attention to this. Pay attention to this. Look at this. This is a big deal, is what he's saying. And that's what the Holy Spirit is saying through the writing of this psalm and through this writer. Behold, that's an attention-getting word. Pay attention to this and think about this. This is not optional. This is not something that you can do or not do and live without. This is important. This is God speaking to us through his word. And so as we think about this first verse, this verse about unity, <coughs> it's just a basic thing for us. If you will turn in your Bibles to John 17... Jesus is praying before he goes to the cross in the garden. And it's called his high priestly prayer. One of my favorite passages of scripture. The prayer life of Jesus. And Jesus says something in John 17 verses 20 through 24. And he says, I do not ask for these only, meaning his 11 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now that would be us. That's what we've done. And then he says, here's the purpose, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And then he gives us another purpose. Why does this matter? Why does unity matter like this? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. You know, when I find a church that fights bickers, divides, splits, hates each other, can't get along. You know, I don't blame lost people for not coming. I don't blame other Christians for not joining that fellowship. That sounds like the most unpleasant thing that you could ever experience. And Jesus tells us here that one of the keys of all of this is for us to be one. How should we be one? Just agree not to fight? I have a friend that took a church in, uh, we used to call them pioneer areas. He was in Indiana, and uh, he thought it was going to be a pretty good situation. Well, there were two men in the church that led two factions in the church, pretty evenly divided, and the church just fought and bickered all the time. He found out 
this is what always happens. Pulpit committees never tell you this. He found out after he had moved his family on the field that the two men got together in front of the church, shook hands. Now, you ready for this? This is going to bless you because this is the most spiritual thing you've ever heard. And they agreed not to fight until the new pastor came. Well, that's a blessing, isn't it? And when you look at that type of thing, you go, boy, I bet that church was setting the woods on fire. Well, you know the answer to that. And you know the struggle that that pastor probably had, at least in the early days, because of what they had agreed to do. It was not godly. It was not holy. It was not anything that would please the Lord. I'm sure it grieved the Holy Spirit of God. And uh, this is what Jesus is saying here, that they may be one as we are one. And then he goes on to say that the world might believe that you have sent me. See how important this really is? <clears throat> so it's not only good and pleasant, it's essential that we are together in unity. Uh, reading in John 17 again, he said, uh, picking up where we left off, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Did you know you've been given the glory of God? It's the Holy Spirit. And why did he do that? That they may be one even as we are one. So the Holy Spirit's not leading us to fragment, argue, fight, bicker, get hurt feelings and all of that kind of stuff. He's bringing us together. We're grieving the Spirit of God if that's not happening. And he says, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that, here's another purpose, the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. You know, we can sing Jesus loves me and that's a good thing. But did you know that the Father loves you as he loves his own son, the Lord Jesus? That's a wow moment. That's an amen moment. That's a praise the Lord moment. That's a point where if it was the Old Testament, it might say, Selah, you need to stop and think about that. That's how much the Father loves you. Even as you are sinful and maybe ungodly and immature and all of that, and yet you are loved, Jesus said, just as the Father loves him. Why is that? Because the moment you're saved, you are in Christ, and Christ is in you through the Holy Spirit. And that's the basis for the Father's love. And so we're not talking here about just uniformity. We're not just talking about marching in lockstep and wearing the same uniform as a marching band or a military parade. It's much more than that. He says we're doing this for the sake of evangelism. We're doing this for God's glory. That ought to consume us, right? We're doing it for our testimony, and we're doing it so that we might be able to display God's love. That's how we show the love of God. It's through our unity, not our bickering, not our coldness, not our deadness, not our separation, not our gossip, not any of that. We're, gonna, we're to show the love of God through our unity. And when you think about unity, there are some things that... Uh, came to my mind unity in the gospel we can't compromise on that we've got to get that right because there's only one way to be saved we're going to have unity in our morals nothing that the world loves better than to point out christians that are living in uh, contradistinction to the morality that god has laid down before us and they love to mock us because of that we've got to have unity in our doctrine we can't just have just anything going there's truth and there's error right we've also got to have unity in our mission we are marching under the orders of our commander in chief and we are to do what he says when he says to do it and the way that he says to do it basic 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 training is learning how to be in in unity with one another those of you who served in the military you get that they cut your hair, they make you wear the same clothes, but they also want you to be of one heart and one mind on the mission so that when you are in battle, your training takes over and you work together to accomplish the goals. Secondly, notice this is something that is beneficial. What's the good thing? I know God gets glory and the lost world sees that we're real and genuine. What do we get out of it? Well, notice how he says, how good 
and how pleasant it is. How good. I want church to be good. I want it to be pleasant. I want our fellowship to be like that too. And this is what the Bible says happens whenever we truly are in unity. And so God, like a parent, should be pleased with us as we function together. Now, every parent knows that. You don't like to hear your kids bicker, whether they're little bitty kids or whether they're grown children. I know some families where grown children can't even get along, and it grieves the heart of a parent. How do you think God feels? What do you think God, the Holy Spirit, thinks when we're not getting along? Well, you don't know what they did. Well, I, I do kind of know if they've rebelled against God and that they've offended you even close to how they offend God, yeah, it's bad. It's bad. But what does God do when he is offended? He's the one that reaches out. He's the one that forgives. He's the one that restores. Isn't that right? And that's the way he has called us to be as well. And so this is something that is beneficial because it's good and pleasant for brethren to dwell together in unity. So we should enjoy living together. We should enjoy serving together. We should enjoy worshiping together. And you know something else? There are going to be battles from time to time. And we're not supposed to be battling each other. That's why Paul said we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So quit it. Get your eye on the right enemy. And work together in wars. Work together in battles. And when the church is under attack... For heaven's sake, defend one another. Don't take sides with the outside world. Don't take sides with the forces of darkness. Stick up for one another. We're family. We are to defend one another as the Lord is also the one who fights for us. The Bible says in 1 John, He is the one who is our advocate before the Father. What is He doing? Defending us. And so we ought to advocate or defend for one another. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. I'm going to go ahead and say it. That's impossible. Absolutely impossible. But with God, nothing is Impossible. See, God can do what we can't do if we would get our eyes on Him and be filled with His Spirit and walk in according to His will that is revealed in His Word. But we don't like to do that, do we? Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing. Notice that word, how emphatic that is. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Shows up in church from time to time, doesn't it? But in humility, count others more significant, this translation says, than yourselves. Well, what would it be like if we actually believed those words and actually practiced those things? Unity would be a byproduct of all of that, wouldn't it? Number three. This is also something with boundaries. You know, some people kind of act like the church is just supposed to be, you know, lovey-dovey marshmallows and butterflies and just with everybody and everything that comes along. And you see some churches that are like that. In fact, just um, three days ago, the Church of England, in America we call that Episcopal, but the Church of England, okay, they have now stated that they no longer have a definition for what a woman is. Isn't that great? They can hold hands with the world and, oh, we'll just buy the world a Coke. Remember that old dumb commercial? You know? Isn't that great? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? No. The Bible says here how good and pleasant it is for brethren. That's a family term. That's a family term. Okay? Now, we are not, uh, Miss Shirley, we're not here trying to be the Hatfields and the McCoys with the world, are we? We're not doing that. But we also understand, too, 
we have a higher allegiance than anybody who sits in the White House. We have a higher allegiance than anybody that we work for or anybody that has any kind of authority over us, and that is to God. The disciples said to the Sanhedrin now, we ought to obey God rather than man. Boy, sometimes that's hard. And sometimes that brings on persecution. We don't want that. And we weren't trying to do that. It's just that we listen to a different bugle than the world does. We actually do march to a different drummer, right? The drumbeat of God Almighty. And we go by His Word. And if that causes us to have to be separate from other people, then so be it. It's more important to please our King than it is to make people happy all around us. But the lost world can't do this. Lost church members can't and won't do this. But this is what the family of God is commanded to do. This is something that is for the family. There are some boundaries on all of this. So this is for the family. And the unity is for the essentials of the faith, not just our preferences. You know, God forbid that we divide over silliness, silly things that come along. We don't want to do that. We want to be firm on the gospel, firm on the essentials. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid the full debt for our sin. Jesus rose from the dead bodily. No compromise on those things. Can't fudge on those things. Now there may be some other things. Somebody says, when do you think the rapture is gonna, go, going to take place? Well, I don't really believe in a rapture, an amillennialist might say. You don't separate from him on that. If he's sound in the gospel, you just have a difference of opinion. Somebody else may say, well, I believe the rapture is before the tribulation. Someone else says, you're crazy, it's in the middle of it. And someone else say, no, you both are wrong, it's at the end. Well, you can disagree on that. You can discuss it and have some fun with it, but you don't divide over those kind of things. Some things are not a test of fellowship. If somebody is a Presbyterian and they believe the gospel, you can disagree with them on baptism, which is why we are who we are as Baptists, but you don't have to separate from them if they believe in Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord and have trusted Him as the full payment for their sin, believing that He rose from the dead and they've surrendered to Him as Lord. They're a brother in Christ. They've got some things that are wrong, but they're still a brother or a sister in Christ. See, it was said a long time ago, it was attributed to Augustine, but uh, since been found as by somebody else, and I don't remember who it was, and I don't care enough to look it up. But uh, they made this statement. In unity, I mean, pardon me, in essentials, unity. In doubtful things, liberty. And in all things, Charity. That's what Paul said. Let all that you do be done in love. And sometimes we don't act very loving. And sometimes in our history, different churches and different denominations that were trying to be true to the word of God and had some disagreements, they sure didn't act like it sometimes. Got to be careful on the way that we do. It doesn't mean anything goes. You didn't hear me say that. Doesn't mean everything can be compromised. Didn't he, you didn't hear me say that. But we've got to be careful. You're going to have some disagreements even sometimes within a congregation, a local congregation. There may be people with different opinions about things. For example, on the second coming, all believers that are orthodox believe that Jesus is coming again. We're just not really sure how it happens. And we have disagreements over that. And yet we all agree on the fact that Jesus is coming again. A pastor that I had one time said that his wife was coming home from a conference she was speaking at. And this is back before 9-11 when you could actually go to the gate and meet people. Remember those days? And he said that uh, when she came in, said he was told that her plane would be coming in at gate 8. And he went to gate 8 and he stood there and he stood there Nobody came, nobody came, no airplane was there, no other passengers. What in the world is going on? Then he hears a commotion back behind him. 
And you know what happened? He had the gate wrong. And when he went back to that gate, his wife came and hugged him and they kissed each other and they were so happy to see each other. No, no, what happened was he said, why aren't you at gate eight? That's where I was. You embarrassed me. This is humiliating. Now, at that point, it didn't matter what gate she came in. It was just the fact that she came. And he went on to say that when it comes to the second coming of Christ, some of you are waiting at a premillennial gate. Some of you are waiting at an amillennial gate. Some people are waiting at a post-tribulational gate. And he goes, and I can tell you who's right or wrong. He said, but here's the thing. Whenever Jesus shows up, it won't matter what gate we're at. The only thing that's going to matter is what? That Jesus came. That Jesus came. And so many times we want to fight and bicker over all of that when we've got a lost world that is dying and on its way to hell. And we've got to remember what our mission is. And whatever we are using as an excuse not to do our mission is called sin and disobedience to the Lord. So we've got to be careful about these things. Now, the lines that we cannot cross. I want you to think about 2 Corinthians 6.17. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. And I will be as a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. There comes a point to where we have to come out and say, we can't fellowship with this, we can't be a part of this, but we had better be careful about what we do because sometimes we can get awfully ticky-tacky and there's nothing uh, involved in that except pride and we don't want to be found with that Romans 16 17 gets more specific now I urge you brethren family of God note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine that you learned and avoid them some people just like to fight. Some people are always finding every weird thing they can just so they can cause a, a fight and dissension in their Sunday school class or a Bible study or even in the church. They're always dropping doctrinal bombs and putting weird things in there and causing uh, division. Be careful about who you listen to and to be, be careful about who you are and what you think and what you believe. We're supposed to be unifiers in this. Adrian Rogers said, and I quote, it is better to be divided by truth than to be united in error. It is better to speak the truth that hurts and then heals than falsehood that comforts and then kills. It is better to be hated for telling the truth than to be loved for telling a lie. It is better to stand alone with the truth than to be among the multitude. It is better to be to uh, ultimately succeed with the truth than to temporarily succeed with a lie. There is only one gospel. Can you say amen to that? And in this world, it's going to cost you to stand with the Lord and to stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've got to have a backbone, but yet we've also got to do everything we do in love, and we've got to be very discerning. Number four... This is something that is beautiful. To dwell together in unity. Dwelling, living, being at home together. He's talking about. And doing it in unity. You know, there can be people in, a, in the same household living together and they hate each other. They don't speak to each other. They don't eat together. When the doors close, they close with a slam. There's yelling. I may be describing your home. I hope not. It's a terrible thing to dwell together like that. But the Bible says here it is a beautiful thing and pleasing to God when families dwell together in unity, especially the spiritual family, the people of God. When Israel's 12 tribes are getting along together, no wonder they did so well under David and Solomon. But when they split, neither one of them did exceedingly well. And the 10 tribes of the north did worse than the two tribes in the south, but none of them did well, and both of them ended up being taken away into captivity. 
Why is that? Because families are made, even spiritual families, even the family of God, to function together under the authority of God and under those that he has appointed to be leaders to have our spiritual gifts in operation. And they're not there to just everything be the same, but for things to be in harmony. Now, anybody know what that note is? Well, it wasn't middle, but it is a C. Okay? There's a C. There's a C. There's a C. There's a C. Okay? They're all essentially the same note, just different octaves. But it's interesting when you put a C and an E and a G. Different notes, but how much better does that sound than... Nothing wrong with that, but so much prettier, isn't it? It's called harmony. They're not the same, but they work together, and they fit together. And that's the way God has designed us. We call it unity in our diversity. And it's not because all of the, we have a church that's nothing but prophets. Whew, that'd be rough, wouldn't it? Or a church with nothing but mercy people. Whew, I don't, I don't, I'll take the prophets almost over that, right? Nothing but teachers. Never can say I wouldn't want to preach to a whole group of people with the gift of teaching because you can never say anything right enough for them. You can never footnote everything enough, right? You can never be a good enough leader to please the administrators in the church. I mean, we could go on with all seven of those motivational gifts. But the key is they're supposed to fit together so that we can give a perfect picture of Christ as we do that. And we walk together in unity because we are not doing everything according to us, our personalities, our backgrounds, our preferences, or even our gifts. We're looking up to the one and we're saying, Commander, where would you have me serve? What would you have me do? And when should I do it? And when everyone does that, the church functions together and there's a beauty in it. And it's not just a Johnny one note. It's not just different octaves of the same note. Beautiful music is able to come forth through all of this because this is something beautiful. To dwell together in unity, some versions say harmony. In other words, our differences enhance the gospel. You can talk to people that I can't talk to and I can talk to people that you can't talk to and when we all are doing that instead of saying somebody ought to we just do it and we do it as we are gifted as we are able guess what a whole lot more happens than uh, when we bicker and we have differing backgrounds experiences differing interests and God uses all of these to reach, to reach different kinds of people with the same gospel if you don't know anything about uh, automobiles, you can still witness to a mechanic. But if you're a mechanic, you can probably witness to another mechanic far easier than some of the rest of us can. If you've got a farming background, you can probably talk to someone in agricultural, uh, agriculture and tell them about Jesus far better than a lot of us can. If you're a nuclear physicist, you can probably talk to another nuclear physicist far better than the rest of us can. And that's why God uses us like that. And it's not exclusive. I don't want you to go and say, well, I'm not a doctor, so I'll never witness to a doctor. I didn't say that. I'm just saying that God uses us and our backgrounds and our experiences in order that we might reach out to and identify with other people. And the same thing is true even in the church. We are reaching different types of people, but it's the same gospel. And even in the church, we're different people with different backgrounds and experiences and ages, and yet we have the same truth, the same word of God, and we work together. Now, differences can divide 1 Corinthians chapter 13 uh, pardon me chapter 3 verses 2 through 4 I fed you with milk not solid food for you were not ready for it and even now you are not yet ready for you are still of the flesh now how do we know somebody or a church is in the flesh 
I'm glad you asked. Paul tells us. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? And some people are so spiritual, they say, I follow Christ, you know. Had a guy tell me one time he was doing wrong, but he was walking on a higher plane that we couldn't understand. Oh, come on. That makes you want to puke, doesn't it? That's the division. But differences can be beautiful. We pick up 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos? Why are you making a big deal about him? What is Paul? And we've got our own people, our heroes and all of that. And Paul would say, what are you talking about? They're nothing. In fact, he goes on to say, what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And that's our problem. We get our eyes off of God, don't we? We think we did it. We deserve it. And he goes on to make it even worse. So then he who plants, nor he who waters, is anything. There's a dose of humility for you. You think you're somebody in the church? Got news for you. You're going to die and be buried, and the church will go on. I'm going to die and be buried, and the church will go on. Why? It's not about us. It's about God. So neither he who plants nor he who waters, not that that's bad, is anything but only God who gives the growth. I watered some dead flowers one time and I could not get them to grow. So what's wrong with you? I guess I don't have a green thumb, right? You say, well, hey, dummy, they were dead. That's Paul's point, isn't it? You and I can't bring life. Only God can do that. So get off of your high horse, in other words. But it's God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are... Oh, we're back to our unity word. They're one. You may not have led anybody to Christ, but you witnessed a whole lot more than anybody ever did. Don't get down about that. You're doing what God wanted you to do. You may be scattering seed. Somebody else may reap the harvest. You may be with the spiritual watering can, pouring the water on the little plant, especially in this kind of heat like we're having right now. It's necessary. I never get to lead anybody to the Lord. Well, you're doing what God wanted you to do. And I've got a sneaking suspicion, if you plant long enough and if you water long enough, you probably will. But our problem is we emphasize the wrong people. Paul says, you've got your eyes on the harvesters. You've got your eyes on the influencers. You've got your eyes on the people with personality. You've got your eyes on all of them. Quit it. Get your eyes on God. And so uh, they're one. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are, you ready for this? God's fellow workers. You are God's field and God's building. A co-laborer with God. You don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. That's not just left up to special people in the elite or anything. No, that's all of us, folks. Get to work. Used to be a song that said, My house is full, but my field is empty. Isn't that kind of the way it is? Somebody will do it. Well, the elect will come in. Look, none of that's any of your business. What are you doing? And are you being obedient to God? A.W. Tozer, I love his quotes. We'll close with this. He said, 100 religious persons knit into unity by careful organization do not constitute a church any more than 11 dead men make a football team. The first requisite is life. Always. Do you have the life of God? You don't get the life of God by being baptized. You don't get the life of God by walking an aisle. 
You don't get the life of God by quitting smoking or quitting drinking or quitting drugs. You don't get the life of God by stopping your fornication or perversions or anything like that. There's only one way to get the life of God. And the Bible says, For by grace, the undeserved favor of God, are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. Even that is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And it sounds like in Corinth, those people were walking around boasting who they followed, who they knew, who they believed, and who had an impact on their life. And they would get so wrapped up in Paul. Oh, yeah, you've got Apollos? Well, I've got Paul, right? Well, Paul's a little harsh and all of that. I prefer Apollos. He's a little more loving and encouraging. And Paul is saying to them, you're following a bunch of nothing. Would you give your life for nothing? I saw a TV show one time where a guy was getting ready to die, and his biggest fear was that he would die for nothing. Are you going to die for nothing? You say, well, I don't think so. Here's how I can tell you whether you're going to die for nothing. Are you living for nothing? What does it mean to live for nothing? It means to live for this world. It's passing away. It means to live for self because you're going to pass away one of these days. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You live for Christ and serve Him, you're not living for nothing. And you'll be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. And you'll have gold, silver, and precious stones that'll be given to you. And you'll say, Lord, I don't deserve any of this. And then you'll have the privilege to take them and say, this belongs to you. And lay it at His feet. And so tonight, if you're not saved, I encourage you, Get saved, repent of your sins, believe the gospel. And if you are saved, start living for Christ. And don't stand before him empty-handed on the day of judgment. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight that unity, as important as it is to you, needs to become important to us. And the way we treat other people, the way we think about other people, the way we act and react with other people. Far too important to just let it go or to say it would be nice if it happened. We are to be unity makers. Holy Spirit, correct us, discipline us, and shape us so that we can be the kind of people that actually promote unity in our local church. And through that, give God glory. And through that, let the world see that you are real as you work in and through us. And may our lives, our families, our marriages, and even our church do something that our country can't do right now, be unified so that we bring glory and pleasure to you. In Jesus' name, amen.